We'll do some a couple of John Dunn poems today. Did you leave those for Did you leave those somewhere? Oh, um, right. Is that over there on the shelf, Doug? I think. What's going on? Everybody show. Oh, no. <coughs> Any prayer request this morning? I I do. Um, for um, Mike and Wendy. Mike and. <coughs> There was a day, there was a day that I would have had that. Those days are going. Say it again. Uh, for Mike and Winnie. Mike um, and Minnie? Winnie. 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 Last, last time I told you that they were going to find out whether they were um, oh, yeah. pregnant or not, and they are. Wow. Good. wow. Yes, after I don't even, I've lost count how many times they've done that. Wow. Um, but they have. All indications are that they are. They have to do a um, scan, an ultrasound. Oh, thank you. They have to do an ultrasound, and they will find out for sure when that is done. So. Um, so it's not certain. Well, all of the all of the hormones, all of the blood tests yeah, say yeah, yes, yeah, and they're yeah. very very positive. So yeah, that everything. Yeah. But um, as as they say, they're cautiously optimistic, yeah, and yeah. and I would just ask that that it be true, yeah. it be so, yeah. and that that the pregnancy continues on yep. unimpeded. Anybody? I don't know if um, I think several of you know that my daughter was going to visit with her birth mother, and that worked really well. So. Thank you. If you were frightened for that, thank you. We, we all were. We all were. What's your name? Megan. Megan. And her birth mother is Susan. Sorry? Susan is Susan. her birth mother. Does she live in the same town or somewhere else? She lives in Houston. In Houston. So it was pretty oh. bad. And Devin Susan. I got to Let's start. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I wish we had the readings. I'm sorry. <coughs> um, I have the um, Let it go, Doc. Um, um, so, um, Debbie, can you close the door? Oh, sorry. Um, your words to us this morning um, were to turn away from sin. Um, that when the good man turns from his good ways, sinful ways, he will die. And when the evil man turns from his evil ways to virtue, he will live. That's the Lord. That's you. Um, so what were the Christ, the gospel reading? <laughs> we just turned it, right? <clears throat> Sorry, you guys. Suzanne's got it, Debbie. Okay. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, um, righteousness needs to surpass the that oh, the, describes the yeah. Pharisees. 
Um, you ask us to to be very truthful about the Pharisee in each of us. Um, that very often we get self-righteous and proud and um, expect things of other people um, that we don't ask of ourselves. Um, so, um, to turn from evil to good, um, to be more honest about what goes on inside of us, because you reminded us that um, we shouldn't commit murder, but even more importantly, we shouldn't get angry. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad for Father's words. A righteous anger, getting angry at injustices, is a good thing. But getting angry at somebody for selfish reasons, because we don't get ourselves out of the way when we get angry, <coughs> um, so that our anger is too much for ourselves, um, you're asking us to pull away from all of that. Um, to grow in humility, um, to take on penance, to say no to ourselves, um, knowing that we move more closely to you, become more one with you. Help each of us to grow closer to you, to be one with you, make our, make our lives one with your own, so that we bring you to everything we do. So I ask a blessing on all of us in this Lenten period. Um, um, to take on the struggles of a climb um, against ourselves, um, most especially when we get tired. Spiritual acts always take a lot. Um, help each of us enter your cross to somehow be glad to take a cross with its humiliations, um, trusting that we will, we will come out of it like somebody dying and coming back to life and seeing with new eyes. Um, Help us all to do that, please. Um, um, ask for a, a special grace again for Mike and Winnie. Let the good news <coughs> turn out to be real, or the expectations anyway. If it's not, um, it, it'll be a tough report for them. Um, help them keep their strength to not be discouraged. Um, we all know that very often when we lose something, we get devastated. And most of us know that sometime after that, we realize that um, that very thing helped us to grow, to become better when we didn't know it at the time because the disappointments or the pains were so great. Help us always to hold on to that. Whatever disappointments, there's something better ahead if we hold on, um, stay close to you. We're grateful for what happened with um, Barbara and her daughter, um, her daughter's birth mother. Um, let all that the three of them do going forward draw them closer to each other. Um, um, share a greater life now because of the more relationships. Um, let them know a joy in it. Ask a special blessing on, um, on Bev today in her surgery, mm -hmm. watch over her, um, keep her safe, let the surgery go well, it won't be an easy surgery for her, um, protect her, keep her safe, watch over Sue um, as she recovers, um, help them both to keep their health.
And we ask a, um, I ask a blessing for Christopher. Um, help him to open himself, move closer to you, and to a friend, Neil, who just went through a horribly unjust um, um, event. Um, help him not to lose heart. And Tom. And Tom. Um, we offer thanksgiving for Tom, um, having successfully gone through his procedure. Um, watch over him and Linda both. Um, keep us all together, even when we're apart. We are glad for these ties together, and especially now to be going undergoing Lent together. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I can hear Suzanne going at dinners, because very often when I say prayers, used to, when we don't see our families much anymore, but she'd make the prayer short. Dinner's getting cold. Make the prayer short. <laughs> I can't do it. Can you catch it? I can't. Oh. Yeah, go, go again. Go ahead. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. You got it in your eyes. <laughs> That's it. I mean, that's what I would say. I might ask you to. I might ask you if I can use that pin again today because I want to look at something. But after. Why, why didn't you just keep it? No. <laughs> um, let's let's look at. Um, <coughs> Remember, we did these moderns for several weeks. Proofrock in Spanish cloister and uh, my last Duchess, and if. You remember that the lyric, the lyric takes us <clears throat> to the inner part of the soul that's invisible that we can't see. So the poet, the poet speaks from his heart, grieving a death, wanting to take his beloved to bed. I mean, whatever it is, we're in that world. And one of the interesting things that happened has happened in our modern world is that um, the lyric has received a pretty serious critique from Browning and Eliot. Traditionally, most poems, most lyric poems written, tended to sentimentalize love. And I want to say this really seriously. It's, a, it's an interesting thing to see. Um, you can see poets declaring their love, the, the carpe diem. Let's go to bed now because we're both getting old. You know, the car, um, carpe diem, do it now because there is you know, tomorrow sort of thing. Seize the day. Huh? Seize the day. Seize the day. Um, um, most of the poems are safe. They're, they're, they're giving expression to sentiments that are relatively accepted, conventional. Seize the day, grieving for a loved one. Those are, those are the typical subjects of the lyric poem. Anticipation, consummation, um, death. That's the lyric range, okay? Does everybody hear that? Mm -hmm. Anticipation, looking forward to a meeting, consummation, the love being con uh, consummated, and grieving, death. Um, but if you look at the lyric tradition, most of the sentiments are beautifully expressed because they're, they're expressed by great poets. They, they can do so much with language. In the modern world, that lyric, that lyric interior has come under a severe scrutiny and what it's showing when you read it is there's a kind of a quality of shallowness that, that the poets are sort of playing safe. There's nothing safe about Wordsworth. I mean, the poems are really lovely. But you never see Wordsworth dealing with spiritual evil. You know, or 
The Shakespeare did, Dunn did, but they're rare. Dante did, they're rare. They're rare. Um, until the modern world, and then you look at Browning doing my um, Spanish cloister. Remember the the brother wishing evil on his fellow friar. I mean, he's supposed to be great in charity, and everything he's doing suggests he's damning himself. And the Spanish or the my last duchess. You, we go inside the interior of this um, count, who's um, welcoming um, an emissary um, from a very wealthy what he hopes to be a father-in-law, and is showing off this painting of his dead wife, and in his own mind not giving anything away. But when you read it, you read it and you think, this, this is sinister. The likelihood is he killed him. And the greater, what we, I think, know with a greater degree of certainty is, it's, it's fairly clear, he loves this painting with all of its perfect beauty more than he did his wife. So, Brownie's critiquing the, here it is, the Pharisees, that outwardly he seems like this very good man, inwardly he is sinister, probably killed his wife. I, I believe he did kill his wife, and if he does marry again, this, this, the daughter of this other wealthy man is in danger. You know, it's, that's how dark it is. And then we get to Prufrock, and Prufrock seems this sort of aesthete, loves art, very delicate sensitivity, loves language, lives in the imagination. There, no, he's doing nothing sinister. But when you get to the end of the poem, you realize this guy lives in his own world and is completely cut off. Human voices and we drown. He's done everything he can to not participate in the human condition. So the lyric, as we moved into the modern world, is showing this interior that's anything but sentimental, touchy, warm, you know, what lyrics are usually about. S suddenly we have to confront spiritual evils. Um, and it's interesting to me that it takes this form in the modern world because it, it's, just, it's one of the pieces of evidence that something's wrong. Seri something has seriously gone wrong in our world. So, um, <laughs> all I can say as a teacher who spent his life teaching, I'm so glad to be sharing this stuff with you because, no, no, I, I mean, I'm not, because <clears throat> lots of people don't have these things. You, you guys are, you know, going to a rare place where you're being asked to see things that a lot of people don't see. And I just think blessings on you all that, that um, you know, that we're doing this. So, <clears throat> after those poems, I said we would go back because I wanted you to, to see more clearly what we've done by setting it against more traditional lyrics. So we read Shakespeare, I think we did last, yeah, we did last week. This week I want to read two poems of Dunn. So when I read them, now, now you, you've had enough lyric poetry, you know, for a couple of years. Recently we've done Browning and Elliot, these dark poems. I wanted to go back so you could see more clearly what's taken place, okay? Because these are more in keeping with the, the lyric as it's traditionally unfolded, okay? So done on page four, divine poems, a hymn to God our Father. And then I'm going to do the good moral. <clears throat> a hymn to God the Father. Now remember, Dunn loves language. And we've done this before. We've done this before. Um, Dunn knows that puns, you can just look at them and say they're cute. But at some point, for serious poets, 
you realize that they're aware that puns aren't just puns, one thing matching up against another, that the fact that those two things coincide suggests a larger metaphysical dimension to things. It's like an echoing of something larger, like mimosine, you know, that there's this harmony to things. And we participate in something much larger than we realize. So punning's not just an arbitrary or acute thing. It, it, it has a, a deeper meaning. So just remember, his name is Dunn when we go through this poem. A hymn to God the Father. <coughs> Would thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? Would thou forgive that sin um, through which I run and do run still, but still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. But thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin, and made my sin I their door. But thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score. When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. By the way, his wife's name, and if I remember, was Ann Moore. And we do, I mean, there's, it could be a, it, it's like, the way marriages help us, having a wife makes a different than if you're alone in your sins. <coughs> what was her name again? It was Ann Moore. Because remember, he's, he's closing, he's saying, Thou hast not done, for I have more. He's saying, I have more sins. So every time he's, he's contrite and he's forgiven, he knows he'll sin again. So he's just saying, I have more. But there could be another play, another pun on that word. I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. But swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done, I fear no more. Beautiful poem, huh? Yep. Um, would thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two but wallowed in a score? <clears throat> the beauty of it is he knows. He, he keeps failing. <clears throat> um, but God is forgiving if he keeps turning back to him. <clears throat> Let's do the good morals to the next page. <clears throat> Just a backstory note here. When, when I read this poem, I... Um, it, and it's hard for me to, the, to believe that Dunn didn't have this on his mind. Remember the story of Nicodemus in the Bible. Remember when Nicodemus, um, Christ was talking to him about being reborn and Nicodemus was laughing at God. It's like Sarah's laughing at God when, when he told her that she would have a child. This, the disbelief we bring to God and, you know, and the irony of the, the needle that no man can get into heaven. It's like a camel passing through and then Christ saying, Yes, true, um, but what's impossible for men is not impossible for God. We keep putting these boundaries on God. Remember, Nicodemus laughed at Christ. So what I'm going to do, jump back in my mother's womb. And he said, no, it's a rebirth of spirit. That, that This is why suffering, I believe, is so important. When we suffer, we're brought to a new consciousness of something. This is so true. That new consciousness is a form of rebirth. The modern world wants to do everything it can to get suffering out of the way. 
we believe that, that suffering is crucial to a rebirth, to seeing things differently. It's been behind every epic we've ever read, the suffering of the hero, what he has to go through for this new identity. The word suffering comes from sufere, the Latin, and it's related to the word in English, fertile. Fertile. Isn't that ironic? Mm -hmm. Suffering means bringing something up from below. That's what it means. We associate it with fertility, something coming up. So our faith is that when we go through periods of suffering, um, it should deepen our faith. We know, we believe that coming out of it, we will, we will experience a rebirth, a new way of seeing things that we would have never had without that suffering. So just hold on to that that, what do I do, jump back into my mother's womb? And, and Christ clarifying and saying, no, this is a birth in the Spirit, that the Spirit works in us, helping us to see things differently, to feel things differently. So the, the poem, The Good Morrow, is about done saying, what do we do before we loved? And I think most of us know that. Um, go back to our lives before we fell in love. It's almost as if we didn't exist, that we were living in one-dimensional life. But as soon as we fell in love and began to be together in some way, something happened to us that changed us from what we were before. So the new morrow is this new life they've taken on. And he's asking himself, what do we do before then? It's as if we weren't like, like I was living in a fantasy. So it's about a, a rebirth that comes through love. The good morrow. <coughs> I wonder by my troth, what thou and I did till we loved? Were we not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly, or snorted we in the seven sleepers' den? Twas so, but this all pleasures fancies be, they're all fancies. If ever any beauty I did see, which I desired and got, twas but a dream of thee. And now good morrow to our waking souls, which watch not one another out of fear, for love, all love of other sights controls and makes one little room and everywhere. Let sea discoverers to new worlds have gone. Let maps to other worlds on worlds have shown. Let us possess one world, each hath one and is one. My face in thine eye, thine in mine appears, and true plain hearts do in their faces rest. To see the image in another is to rest in that other, to be one with that other. And true plain hearts do in the faces rest. Where can we find two better hemispheres without sharp north, without declining west? Whatever dies was not mixed equally. If our two loves be one, or thou and I love so alike that none can slacken, none can die. Think about all the beautiful images there. There's no north, there's no south, east or west. There's, all, there's only one. The universe is one, and you're one with it. Why? Because God created the universe in love. When you're really in love, you find yourself at one with the universe. It's like being in one room or a whole. All the divisions, the compartments, fall away. It's a beautiful image. It makes you ask, what would it have been like if we'd not fallen in love? to have gone on the way we were going on, but something happened when we loved. And so it's an affirmation of the good morrow, the, the day to come, the, the, all, the, 
everything that's full of wonder and unity and you know, sort of blessedness with everything around him. So these are the more traditional lyrics. Now, set these next to um, Spanish Cloister, My Last Duchess, Proof Rock. Okay, okay let's, let's start. <clears throat> Purgatory. Very, very quick definition. I'm just repeating what I've said before, but let me to, to try to make this concise. What's purgatory? It's the effort with God's help to free ourselves from worldly attachments. It's to free ourselves of worldliness. It's to begin to step out of that Plato's cave. Remember, we don't know it when we grow up, but the world shapes us. It takes hold. We want the things of the world before we know enough. We don't know better. Um, and a worldliness comes over us. Purgatories, an effort with God's help to free ourselves from that, from those worldly attachments. Um, and the power that we've given them over us. Things don't have a power over us. We, we give them a power over us by wanting them as much as we do. And remember when Dante enters the gates of uh, St. Peter's gates to begin purgatory proper, the guardian's words are, do not look back. So we have to struggle not to look back. And even if we do, we've got to pick up, get going again. Um, so um, we've been looking at purgatory, and we've seen that as the penitents move up each level, sin is being stripped, and they're learning to see better more completely. They're recovering what they lost. Remember this whole theme of memory. Mimosine, this great cosmic memory. It's trying to recover what was lost, and that doesn't mean our keys. Oh boy, <laughs> you guys don't know what you escaped on Monday night. I came to class, and when we were ready to start, I started looking for my books, was certain I put them in the car, forgot them at home. And this was a class about memory. <laughs> and what was the other thing? Well, there was another thing that I forgot. It was just, I mean, it, was, it became laughable. Um, anyway, it's not where we forgot our keys or to recover that which was lost is to recover our, our right relationship with God that we have in Eden. So what's being recovered is the state of blessedness. That's why at each cornice, the angels are speaking a beatitude. Blessed are those, blessed are those. The penitents are returning to a state of blessedness. Okay, they're recovering their wholeness with God. And you know, because this was crucial, wholeness is not the way we understand it. Remember I gave the example of the Trinity that God the Father is not more or less than the Son and Spirit. Mm -hmm. That um, He is one with the whole, and that's true, the Son and the Spirit. That they indwell in each other. God is being. They perfectly indwell. So the Son is not inferior. The Father-Son expresses a relationship, not a subordination. The Son is one with the Father. The Holy Spirit is one with both of them. So the wholeness that we're recovering is more like that. That as the souls approach the end of their purgation and then be begin to enter into the heavens, they indwell with each other. They're one. They, they, their individuality, their separateness is protected. They don't lose who they are individually but they become more one with each other. 
So each time a soul enters heaven, it's not just one more soul. Heaven plus one. When a soul enters heaven, the effects are like the multiplication of the, of the fish. It's exponential. Because that soul indulges and dwells with everybody. And reciprocally, they with that soul. So what goes on in heaven is nothing short of this extraordinary wonder. It's not parts and wholes. In our life, we tend to see things in, in dichotomies, subject, object. She, he, them. In heaven, it's I, we, together. They're all together. So that subject, object dichotomy is overcome. People become one with each other. That's the wonder of heaven. So as the souls are moving up purgatory, they're beginning to recover that sense of love, the unity of it, the unity of power of it, the wonder that comes with it. You know, as we listen to the souls going up heaven when they talk, I mean, you can't, you can't, when you compare it to what goes on in Inferno, you can't miss it. There's, there's nothing but courtesy. As you, as you, you know, Dante engages these souls, all we hear is graciousness, courtesy, wonder, wonder again and again and again. So um, that's the nature of purgatory we've been, um, we've been looking at. I want to just very quickly um, go back to exactly what Dante's learning and wanting us to learn um, from him. Remember that the, the center canto, canto, cantos of the whole Commedia um, are 16, 17, 18 in the Purgatorio, 15, 16, 17, 18, those. And in those cantos, we get these famous discourses on free will and love. It's not an accident, because those are the most important things involving our faith. So I want to I go back just quickly to, to review this. One of the great problems that souls encounter that help explain sin are these disorders in the world. This is Plato's cave. These are the disorders we grew up in, okay? So take a look at 227. So this is a quick review. This is Sordello early on, and Dante um, speaks to him. This is in um, Antipurgatory. Dante speaks to him um, and asks him, what's the cause of the sins? Why do people sin? This is interesting because Dante's first concern is not to go to the individual sins of people. It's to look at large <clears throat> the sorts of things people encounter in the world, just as we do as we grow up. Top of 227. Um, you priests who should pursue your holiness, remembering what God prescribes for you, let Caesar take the saddle as he should. See how this beast has grown viciously wild without the rider's spurs to set her straight. Since you dared take the reins into your hands, O German Albert, you abandoned her, it's the emperor, you should have been astride her saddle bow. Um, and go down below. Sordello grieves at the situation, and notice his emphasis. Remember, he's an excommunicate. He's outside um, the, the purgatory proper with all these other souls. 
but because he was excommunicated, his beliefs kept him outside. Come, heartless one, come see your noblemen who suffer. Help them heal their wounds. Come see how safe it is to dwell in Santafior. That is, lords, go back to English history where the lords governed in England. You know, there would be lords over districts of England. Just as there are governors in America, governors, there are lords that oversee districts. It's important because you need voices close to home that can oversee the problems of their people because they're not all the same for everybody. The problems in Virginia are going to be <laughs> very different from the problems in California. <laughs> um, Suzanne, I believe that California is going to break off and float away. <laughs> <laughs> You're hoping. Um, Come, New York. <laughs> come, come see your city Rome in mourning now, widowed alone, lamenting night and day. My Caesar, why have you abandoned me? You all hear the echoes to Christ. Except it's not Christ. The problem is there's not a political leader. No, no regime can go along without a good political leader. Caesar, Christ saying, given to Caesar. What's Caesar? You know? And no good, no man can lead well if he doesn't have a sense of natural law. The, the, the natural laws that should govern us, because according to a Christian, that natural law is rooted in divine law. If a human person does not have a proper sense of the human soul, he'll not be able to rule well. When he's ruling, what he does is out of a tune with the human soul, he's going to bring on his own destruction. He's going to create conditions that are not conducive to the growth of the human soul. How many people today have any notion of the nature of the human soul? I've been going, you know, I've been going back to Plato's Republic because it's the first book that really lays out that the soul has a nature. And it's crucial because if politicians don't know that nature, they're likely to violate it. The laws that they'll create will be against the human soul. Are, were slavery laws natural? Were they in accord with natural law? Absolutely not. That's why we went to war. Are the abortion laws, um, are they reflecting um, the real nature of the human person? Absolutely not. And they're far worse than the 19th century laws that supported slavery because the ultimate end today is legalized murder. I mean, children are being killed and, and the, the death is being justified. And how many people know that? I mean, I'm sure that the vast majority of women, have they, they don't think that way. It's not like they're willingly going out to kill somebody. They don't know any better. How important is education? Why are we together here? So if a political leader does not understand natural law, if he does not understand the nature of a human being, how can he rule well? So um, um, Sordello is grieving at the loss of good political leaders. The cause? You priest who should pursue your holiness, remembering what God prescribes for you, let Caesar take the saddle. The priests have too much control. The political <clears throat> leaders, the church has taken over in Dante's mind too much. It's too involved in politics. Turn to 283. <clears> Top <throat> the page. I was Lombard. Marco was my name. This is at the level of angry. Remember the anger or wrathful and everybody's enclosed in smoke. I knew about the world. I love that good at which men now no longer aim their bows. The path you're on will lead you to the stairs. Thus he replied, then added, now I pray that you will pray for me when you're above. 
I promise you to do what you've asked, Dante says, but there's a problem haunting me. I can no longer keep it to myself. Now clearly Dante's, been, once again, like the Inferno, he's learning as he goes along. This is in the middle of 283. I first was made aware of it below, and now it plagues my mind a second time, for your words second what I first heard. Remember, Marco says, I knew about the world, I love that good for which men now no longer aim their bows. He loves something that people no longer value. And he's grieving over it, like um, um, Sir, Sir Dello below. Um, go down. Mm. The world indeed, as you have just declared, it is destitute of every virtue known, swarming with evils ever breeding more. What is the cause of this? Please make it clear. So, what is the one thing that Marco agrees? What's been lost? What do men no longer know? Virtue. God, it just, I mean, it just shakes me when I... How many people give any thought to virtue today? Even in the Catholic Church, which should be the repository, what's the answer to every sin as you go up purgatory? Pride, avarice, wrath, sloth. Or, sorry, pride, envy, wrath, sloth. The answer to every sin is virtue. What is the virtue opposite pride? Humility. What's the virtue opposite envy? Generosity. What's the virtue opposite wrath? Meekness. What's the virtue op You see where, I mean, go through this. That's why. And who's the one exemplar of all those virtues? Mary. She's the first one. <clears throat> It sh it, in Mary, we have an image of the natural virtues that we should be struggling to realize. Just stop and think about it. How many people in the Catholic Church enter into Lent thinking, there's actually something I can do for my, my pride, my envy, my wrath? That every one of those things has a virtue for us to practice. We can, we can carry boulders to humble ourselves. When we look um, out through, I remember um, Fred's answer the other day, when we were talking about the pie, remember, and you have more people and you get a smaller piece of pie, what do you do? You, you want them to have an accident on the way to, the, on the way to Thanksgiving? Oh. Um, Fred's answer was, be glad that somebody else gets it. You know, I mean, it's a per that is generosity. Be glad when somebody has something when you don't. Um, wrath, meekness, to be meek, or in every one of those instances, Souls are learning to put themselves away for the sake of a good. How many people, how many people even know that today? That we, that, that we can try to become more virtuous. We will fail. We will trip. We will keep stumbling back. But that should be, if, if purgatory is an image of the church, as I believe it is, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Are they, are they mopeful, moping because they're, no, they're absolutely happy. They're going to God. So Marco's grieving the loss of virtue. He says, is destitute of every virtue known, swarming with evils. Please make it clear that I may teach the truth to other men. A deep sigh wrung by grief into alas. Came first and then, the world, brother, is blind, and obviously the world is where you're from. The world is blind. We've talked about it. We think we see so well and don't realize we're in the cave. That when Christ is healing people's sight, he's actually helping them to see not just the physical world, but they're learning to see through faith. They've been healed. 
You men on earth attribute everything to the sphere's influence alone as if with some predestined plan they moved all things. If this were true, then our free will would be annihilated. What's the problem? Most people live as if it can't be other than it is. Calvin, there he is. Everything's predestined. It can't be other than it is. You're either saved or not. Freud, we have no free will. Freud, we have no free will. The, we, there are determinisms governing our lives. Polymorphous, perverse, the Oedipal, you know, all those things. Those are the defining elements of our life. That's what determines what we are. What's, um, look at the modern philosophies of Freud, Darwin. There isn't a philosophy that hasn't shaped our lives that doesn't deny free will or the use of virtue. Is there any wonder people don't talk about virtue anymore? The governing ideas, the ideologies of our age don't make no place for it. 284, the spheres initiate your tendencies. Dante's acknowledging that there are things that determine us. We all, we all have things that determine some, but it doesn't deny our free will. The spheres initiate your tendencies, not all of them, but even if they did, you have the light that shows you right from wrong. And your free will, which though it may grow faint in its first struggles with the heavens, can still surmount all obstacles if nurtured well. If nurtured well. So if the world today has gone astray, the causes lie lies in yourselves and only there. And I shall carefully explain that cause. Then he gives this beautiful description of what happens. This, um, from the fond hands of God who loves her even before he gives her being, there issues forth just like a child, all smiles and tears at play, the simple soul, pure in its ignorance, which having sprung from Caesar's joy, will turn to anything it likes, because <coughs> desire is natural, it's going to desire candy, cake, whatever. Um, she's attracted to a trivial toy, and though beguiled, she will run after it. If guide or curb do not divert her love. Men, therefore, needed the restraint of laws, needed a ruler able to at least discern the towers of the true city. I think that's a, an allusion to the natural law. That any good ruler would know that natural law has its roots in divine law, the true, the true city. And I think I gave this example, didn't I? Um, natural law is not a, a, um, a Christian notion. It, was, it existed before Christianity. Did I give the example of... Um, 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 what's Oedipus's daughter's name? The, Oedipus's daughter? Yeah, the one who went against the... What's the tragedy? Antigone. Huh? Antigone. And, and, yeah, Antigone, right? Yeah, God, my mind is going... In the tragedy Antigone, um, Antigone has two brothers, and they kill each other in a war. Creon is the king, and he won't allow burial of one of the brothers because that brother went against the rules of the city. Um, these are Oedipus's children. The sons killed each other. Antigone was the surviving daughter. I think there was one more. She goes against Creon. She wants to bury her brother in the walls of the city because he was a product of that city. The city's a, a major trope in all of literature. Creon won't allow it. She ends up hanging herself at the end. It's a tragedy. It's a really dark tragedy. But her appeal to Creon is, it's the universal laws of the gods 
that um, allow him. So when she went against the king, the temporal king, she was calling on a divine power to justify what she did. She was doing it for God. She was appealing to him because she knows that God loves everybody and that her brother should be. So it's an interesting tragedy because she's defying a king who believes in political terms that he's doing what's right. He's a very, he's a, not a, not a good king in lots of ways. But that's one of, our, one of the earliest, best examples of natural law. And that predates Christianity by centuries. So what we learn is there, there is a law to our nature. All the ancient peoples, the Egyptians, you know, the Jews, all Moses came, I mean, even before um, God came to Moses, but all ancient people had a sense there was a nature to man and, and wrote up these laws to reflect that nature. Not all of them are in accord with natural laws, we know it, but it just shows that there is a law to our nature. Um, and it, we believe that that natural law has its roots in divine law, in scripture and in God. Um, <coughs> so, um, and needed a ruler able to at least discern the towers of the true city. True, the laws there are, but who enforces them? No one. The shepherd who is leading you can chew the cud, but lacks the cloven hook. Chew the cud, that's the pope. He should be meditating, praying. He has no business trying to use the political laws to enforce what he believes is right. Not his place. He lacks the cloven, he lacks the harshness necessary. Because we know that laws sometimes have to be harsh. To stop people from doing things, they have to be. Remember um, Uriel's father? Mm -hmm. or Uriel's father in Tui and Face. And remember Cato at the foot of Purgatory. Because when things get too easy, it's too easy for us to do wrong if we don't have laws holding us to what's right. And so the flock that see their shepherds greed for the whole worldly goods that they have craved are quite content to feed on what he feeds. If the Pope is indulgent, having wealth and sumptuous meals and mistresses and doing other wants, why shouldn't the people? Um, and that's what we have, he says. 285, on Rome, that brought the world to know the good, once shown two suns that lighted up two ways, the road of this world and the road of God, given to Caesar unto God. Down below, tell the world this, the church of Rome, which fused two powers into one, has sunk in muck, defining both herself and her true role. Well argued, my dear Marco, I replied, and now I understand why Levi's sons were not permitted to inherit wealth. I think we went over that, right? We did. Because the minute... The minute you get too attached to earthly things, your loyalties turn away from God. Remember, this is 1300. Go back to Milton. What grieved Milton so much? The, 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 he, he, he wanted a theocracy. Remember, he wanted a Christian church directing. But all the wars that went on, because when Henry made himself the head of the church, he, he wedded the spiritual with the political, and he made himself as a king the arbiter of all dogmatic matters. He could decide, he could change dogmas if he wanted. He was the sovereign, he could decide matters of faith. And we saw the problems of Greta for centuries um, when Milton was struggling with them. So, um, 
What we learn as Dante's moving up purgatory is that there are these larger issues, problems in the world, the disorders in the world, the lawlessness, the, the way in which the church oversteps itself, tries to assume a power it doesn't have. I've argued, and I believe it really strongly, that one of the great accomplishments of the medieval church was the sorting out of these powers. Dante could not have done this. This is a clear expression of the church having reached a point where it began to sort itself out. Because remember, with the collapse of Rome, it's the Pope who comes out. The Pope gets embroiled in politics from that time forward. But by this time, the church is sorting itself out, separating. What happened in England when Henry made himself head of the church? It's like he went back several hundred years. America? First Amendment? I mean, we've tried everything we can to um, separate out those powers and make it a part of our Constitution. And you know that it, the problems that we still face with it. But So one of the major problems are, is the, the failure to see the proper authority and the proper ends of each of these two institutions, the church and the state. Um, and at the same time, we've been seeing that each person has his own particular sins, inclinations, and he has to, to do them. All of us have pride, envy, wrath. You know, they're all a part of all of us. So purgatory is learning to, to strip ourselves of the worldliness, to step back, to, to, to do away with the power that the world has over it because we want things so much. That's the call to holiness. Um, and at the center are these, um, are these extraordinary discourses. Um, go to 290, and, and I'll do this and stop in a second because I want to move forward. 290, this to me is one of the most extraordinary discourses in all of literature as I know it. Dante, still perplexed with these problems, and asks Virgil about free will and love. And um, Virgil wants to explain what love and free will are, and he does it in a way that explains the structure of purgatory itself. Um, 290. Neither creature nor his creatures ever, my son, lacked love. There are, as you well know, two kinds, the natural love, the rational. Natural love may never be at fault, the other may by choosing the wrong good. While it's fixed on the eternal good and observes temperance, loving worldly goods, it cannot be the cause of sinful joys. God made nothing bad. Natural love is always good, unless something corrupts it. By nature, it's inherently good. Think how different that is from the, um, from the broad church um, fundamentalist Protestant, because the fundamentalist believes man is corrupted. So love is corrupted. It, it, without Christ, it's, it's going to be bad. Um, it cannot be the cause of sinful joys. But when it turns towards evil or pursues some good with not enough or too much zeal, the creature turns on its creator then, so you can understand how love must be the seed of every virtue growing in you and every deed that merits punishment. This is radical. He's saying love is the cause of all good. Love, what's the cause of evil? How many people would say this today? Truly, think about that. How many people would say, what's the cause of evil? The answer to that's obvious, love. <laughs> they think you're nuts. Um, Dante's saying the cause of all good 
is love. The cause of all evil is love. God made nothing bad. It's what we do with our loves that brings evil into the world. The angels, the fallen angels, and us as humans. Go down. So he says, now you can see this. So it follows, if I argue well, that evil that man loves must be his neighbor's. This love springs up three ways in mortal clay. There's the man who sees his own success connected to his neighbor's downfall. He longs to see him fall. That is, he wants to see himself above others. That's pride. That's the first one, right? 291. Next, he who fears to lose honor and fame, he wishes for the worst. That's envy. We've talked about that. When somebody has something you don't have, you want him to lose it, and it makes you happy. Remember, the opposite of that is um, mourning, being sad when you see somebody losing something. Finally, he who is wrong flares up in rage with his great passion for revenge. He thinks only of how to harm his fellow. Somebody does something wrong to us, we want to hurt them. We want to get back at them. So the lower purgatory consists of spiritual evils. The love, wanting harm to come to somebody else. We want an evil to come to somebody in pride and envy and wrath. So the cause of those bads are disordered loves. What's happening to the penance at the bottom are they're, they're struggling to order their loves, to make their loves good. <coughs> this threefold love is purged by those below. Now I would have you know the other kind. Now, everything that happens from this point up is love of good. It's a natural love. We should love. Not an evil, love of evil, to wanting evil to come to our friends. And it's love of good. Sloth is an inadequate love. We don't love the good adequately. If you aspire to it or grasp it with only lukewarm love, then on this ledge you will be punished. Another good there is, it brings not joy nor perfect joy, for it's not the true essence, the fruit of root of every good. That love that yields excessively to this is purged above on three terraces. Right? That's avarice, gluttony, and lust. Um... Now let me offer this thought on sloth. Another word for this traditionally in the church is acedia. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Despair. Um, sloth is a curious virtue. I mean a, a fault. Um, let me get personal for a second if I can. I work really hard. I think of myself as a hard-working person. But there are times when something will hit me and I wonder if there isn't more sloth in my character than I realize. Um, Joseph Pieper wrote this book, um, Leisure, um, The Basis of Culture. It's a really important book, major book of the 20th century. It's just a leisure, the basis of culture. In his opening paragraphs, he's describing the efforts of the German people to rebuild Germany after the war. His description of the German people is that they were motivated by despair. They couldn't have worked harder. What was driving them was despair. How many people today work as hard as they do from despair? Because they don't hope in God. Despair, without hope, right? Without hope. That is, they have to do everything themselves. The sign, or, or in the Protestant world, the sign of their election is how hard they work. 
So very often people justify their lives when they're working really hard, but the serious question, I mean the Pharisee question, how much of what they're doing is for themselves? It's a buried despair we don't see. Sloth is a curious thing because it, I, I think it's one of the things that motivates um, suburbia. You want to get out of the city, create this paradise of life. This is not, paradise is not going to be in this world. Our home is not here. St. Augustine made that clear. We're in a peregrine, we're a peregrine people. We're in, we, sh we're, we're not, we should not be at home here. If we're too much at home here, something's wrong. We can build all our mansions and think, I'm finally set. Wealth, comfort, I've got it all. Sloth is a curious um, sin. It's so hidden. You know, it's, in some cases it's very visible, but in others it's, it's just not. Um, and it's here at this point, finally, to end this is, it's at this point that Dante has the siren episode, you remember, that Dante and Virgil have to rest on the steps because the sun goes down and while he does, he sleeps and he has this dream of the siren. Um, yeah, on page 298. I won't go over it, but you remember, she stutters, She's got a pale skin. Um, she's lame. She limps. <clears throat> she, her, her hands are deformed. My eyes upon her work to free her tongue and straighten out all her deformities, gradually suffusing her wan face with just the color love would have desired. And once her tongue was loosened by my gaze, she started singing, and the way she sang captured my mind. It could not free itself. I am, she sang, the sweet siren, I am, whose song beguiles the sailors in mid-sea, enticing them, inviting them to joy. My singing made Ulysses turn away from his desired course, who dwells with me, seldom departs, I satisfy so well. That's it. The most perfect image of self-love that I've ever... I mean, you can read novels where you see... If the novel Atonement I've read, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but if you look at Brianna, the narrator of that, there's nothing that she does that isn't in self-love. Everything she does is for herself. I satisfy so well. <clears throat> Remember in the Odyssey, Odysseus, because he wanted to be the complete man, he wanted to have everything himself, tied himself to the mast uh, and kept his ears unplugged, but had his men plug their ears because he didn't want them captivated, but he wanted to have that experience. So he hears the sirens, but he's not taken in. That to me is too innocent. That's playing with fire. And I'm going to say, I mean, it's one of the way, I think one of the reasons Virgil was critical of Homer. I love, I love, there's nobody going to change my love of Homer. To me, he's just extraordinary. But there's a way in which he played light with that, and I think Virgil saw it. Because even, even if his ears were open and he wasn't captivated, how could he forget that? He's got to take it with him. The, the Jewish world believes that that's um, Lilith. It's the Lilith myth, the succubus. When a man starts playing around with that, he's in danger. The succubus, the Lilith. The Lilith myth is, I don't know if you're aware, in the Jewish tradition, there was somebody other than Eve. And it's just a, it's a way of expressing the power that women can have over men. Their beauty is so extraordinary. I know. I don't have a question about myself. Um, I don't have a question about it, none at all. In fact, I. I I get angry when I watch the world because it tries to act like it's not true. And it, watch 90% of the advertisements. It's a sexy, beautiful woman. S subliminal, subliminal. You get, they're knocking us over the head all the time. 
Women are so exploited, and they're so exploitable. Otherwise, why would they be there? Um, this is Dante's critique of idolatry. The, the power that things in the world have over us comes from us. My eyes upon her work to free her tongue and straight. That is, we idealize things because they're, this is St. Augustine, or I'm using starting off. We, each one of us was created with infinite desires because the object of those desires was an infinite being. Our desires are infinite. As soon, soon as I get my new car, I'm going to be happy. What happens after the first scratch comes? <laughs> you know. Um, we, what we do is project this desire. We idealize somebody without seeing how much we're doing it for ourselves. Because we want something worthy of us. I'm trusting everybody's getting this, because I, I know it. I think we all do. Because we're, we're, this is our pride. Because we deserve so much more. So we tend to project this out on people and we make them more than they are. And what happens when they don't live up? It's the, um, my last duchess. Um, does everybody follow? Am I, am I making too many jumps here? You know, it's, um, it's what, it, what's the count does? He prefers his painting to his wife. Um, because his wife, the painting's not going to talk back or give any problems. Or... Anyway, this is Dante's critique of idolatry. And if you think about it, it's placed exactly where it should be. Because... What the so remember the lower wrongs were evils, love of evil. Now he's looking at love of good, things that are good that we should want, but that we love excessively. We want we make too much of them. So they become an idol. Yeah. They become more than they're inherently worth. Wealth. I mean, think honor. The the Saint Augustine, the four great temptations. Like honor, wealth, image. I can't remember the other one. But you know, and we all know, these are the, the security, wealth, image, job, career. These are the things who make us who we are. People will see us this way. What was one of the Beatitudes? I loved it a couple of weeks ago. It was on the, remember, every, every level ends with a Beatitude. And one of them was, I can't remember, blessed are you for something. Um, the, how does it go? Those who seek approval, the approval of the men, they have their reward. Your reward will. He's, I remember going over this when we started. I mean, go over the Beatitudes. This is where we started. It's just amazing. Because the Beatitudes are the, the severest critique of the world that Christ gave us. They're all lined up. Every one of them shows the people who want things in the world, that's what they've got. Blessed are you who are poor, and those who belong for God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, they don't have God. You're blessed. You will have it one day. The people who have their wealth, they've got what they want. He just goes down the list. So here Dante's giving his critique of goods. If you put all this together, what you see is when the soul is first born, the most important thing is to teach it to love what it should love and to hate what it should hate. To Remember, the, the terms are to curb it, to hold it, to restrain, to teach it restraint, because it's going to need that in the world, because our desires are too great. We want too much. Okay, that's the center of the comedian. 
and, and um, um, on page eight, 18, or I'm sorry, page 292, Canto 18, um, Virgil gives his discourse on free will. I don't want to go into it because it's, it's, a, it's an elaboration on what was said, but it's, it's worth going over. But at the bottom of 294, this noble power Beatrice knows as freedom of the will. Remember that if ever she should mention it to you. We make excuses for ourselves all the time. Um, and the world encourages us to do that. You know, um, when we make excuses, in some ways we're denying the freedom of the will and the choices that we do make. It, it protects us from seeing the consequences of our actions. Then we don't have to look at them. Um, Dante's doing away with all of that. Love is the center of all things. We have free will. There's very little ever in the world that doesn't do everything it can to take free will away. Freud does. Darwin does. All the modern philosophies do. Okay, let's... You let know, the, current, the current disaster on the uh, admissions to the colleges and the buying of all that, mm -hmm. all of that's represented in one part of this or another. Make the connection, David, because I've been following but what do you... Well, what's happened is that people with wealth, whether they're movie oh, stars yeah, or yeah, presidents, yeah. Of, right. that they have, they have used their positions right. to right. gain more money right. or right. to gain interest. Right. And, yep. and I mean, this thing is barely, I think it's at the beginning, I think it's getting worse and worse. I think, I think you're Students right. have already launched suits against colleges. Yes, class I'm so suits. glad. And they're all, the, they're all the Ivy League expensive schools. I'm so glad. Oh, I really am. I mean, no, I mean let those schools wake up to the, mm -hmm. the hypocrisy that mm -hmm. runs them. And sounds like wrath. Huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> that sounds like wrath. <laughs> Rap mine? <laughs> uh, BS. If, that, if there's anything, it's righteous indignation. Not even close. You want to see rap? Well, give me at a bad moment. <laughs> yes. No, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. It's just amazing. Are yeah. you kidding? Rap? <laughs> I'm only saying that because there are times when I do serious penance or try to do serious penance for my. What to me is excessive anger sometimes. That's mild. <laughs> so, so you want to get you want to get me started on the corruption in our country? Then you'll does Suzanne hear your confessions? <laughs> <laughs> yes, she does. not as a priest does. But, <laughs> you give the penance. but she maybe, does. Maybe she gives the penance. Yeah. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Come on, let's. Um, any questions? Just briefly, I want to. I want to. I want to get on. I want to look at Stasius here because it's. And I hope we get time to look at the poets, or at least start them. Any questions before we? How are you guys enjoying? You know, we're going to finish. So finish up the Purgatorio and get going on the. Paradiso, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful opportunity. It's a, Dante's is such a gift. It's like having a prophet in our midst and helping us to see ourselves and our world. Don't lose this chance, you guys. Really, we're only going to be this with it a few more weeks. I'm looking forward to the spacious discussion.
Okay, here we go. Here we go. Um, page um, um, tree ten. Suddenly the mountain shakes. Tree ten. When suddenly I felt the mountain shake as if about to crumble. Dante gets nervous, as if he's going to die. <coughs> this is interesting. In hell, he was passing out. Here, he, here, I guess he's got a little bit more stuff in him because here he's, he gets frightened, seized by the chill of death, but he doesn't pass out. By the way, I think I've told you, I've given this away. He's going to pass out again. When he meets with Beatrice at the top of Purgatory, she is going to lay into him. She, she just takes him apart and Dante passes out again. Um, here, Gloria in Excelsis, I'll sing Deo, at least this is what those close by. So they're singing glory to God as as a soul is released from his penance. Going over to 313. They meet Stasius, who is a Roman poet who, who wrote an epic along the lines of um, Homer's The Iliad, with Achilles as a hero, except now it's Roman. And by the way, if those of you who have done this will know, Iliad, Achilles is the great hero of the Iliad, Odysseus of the Odyssey. Aeneas is the great hero of the Aeneid, but everywhere in the Aeneid, Virgil is critiquing Homer. The first six books of the Aeneid are modeled on the Odyssey, the wanderings of Aeneas. The last six books of the Aeneid are modeled on um, the Iliad, the wars in Italy that Aeneas has to fight to found Rome. And everywhere throughout those 12 books, six modeled on the Odyssey and six on the Iliad. He's critiquing Homer. And in all instances, he's showing that Achilles, that the Greek world was too individualistic. That was, think about America, modern Rome, Greece, that they were too individualistic, too out for their own vainglory, their own glory, their own honor. The Roman ideal is a man who will fight for everybody because Rome is the city for everybody. Not just the people who are good or noble, everybody. And remember, those of you who've done the Aeneid, the image of Rome in, in the battle between Rome and Carthage, we get, a, we get a glimpse of it in Aeneas's meeting with Dido. Dido's the queen of, queen of uh, Carthage. The image of Carthage is that noble war horse. Virgil describes it, and, and we're meant to see it as an image of Carthage. It's, it's the nobility of woman, that woman is so quick to fight that there's something noble in aristocratic women. They're ready to fight. The image of Rome is the um, sow with 30 piglets. It could not be more humbling or embarrassing. I mean, it's, there's nothing noble about it at all. But it's the nurturing of all of them. So Virgil's image of Rome was that it was far more concerned with the common man, that you, you, you would die for anybody. That's not quite true for the Greek world. In the Aeneas, those of you who read it, remember that when they get to the island of the Cyclops, Aeneas and his men discover somebody was left behind. That doesn't take place in Homer. In Homer's world, Odysseus doesn't leave anybody behind. But that's Virgil's way of showing, critiquing Homer, the Odyssey, Odysseus. Because Odysseus was too concerned to be better. His curiosity, he wanted to know, he wanted to be better. Remember in, the, in Dante, he's, he wants to go up that mountain. You all, you all, am I going too fast? He wanted to go up that mountain and his, and his ship is destroyed. 
He wanted to be this complete man, and we know that that's impossible without God. So there was this hubris to the Greek mind. So Dante, Virgil felt that sharply. Dante feels it, because Dante continues that Roman um, tradition. Um, so Stasius was, did an epic modeled on the Iliad, but it was Roman. I've not read it, and it just wasn't, a, and I don't have time to go back, but part of me wishes I could. My belief is that it would affirm what I'm talking about, that it would have taken the Achilles story, but trans rewritten it in some way that would have affirmed Roman values somehow. I don't know that, maybe misspeaking here, but. Um, Stasius meets the two other poets, 313. Appear the mountain trembles when some soul feels itself pure enough to stand erect or start at once to climb. The will to rise alone proves purity. Once freed, it takes possession of the soul. Once a soul becomes good, it frees, it's free. Its own will will move it to the good. St. Augustine, love and do what you will. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It does not matter what the world thinks. If, if we know anything, the world's not going to understand it anyway. If it, if it would, it would have understood Christ. The world will, will not understand this stuff. Dante said repeatedly in the passages I've read today, the world is blind. It's absolutely blind. The will to rise alone proves purity. Once freed, it takes possession of the soul and wills the soul to change its company. It willed to climb before, but the desire high justice set against it inspired it to wish to suffer. We have to go through a period, but at some point, it's as if a door will open, you know, and it's as if it was always open. It just waited for our will to be good enough to, and you walk through. And I, who for 500 years and more have lain here in, in my pain, felt only now the free will to rise. So he was on the level of the avarice. The sin that he was doing penance for was prodigality, which is the opposite. They, they belong together in the same. Because he was a Christian, but he hid his Christianity. And somehow, in the way he lived his life, he was too prodigal, probably making too much of the world. And so he's done 500 years. Now go over to page 320. Top of 320. Before I brought the Greeks to Thebian streams with my poetic art, so there it is. He took the Iliad materials and are you following the image there from, mm -hmm. from Greek to Theban streams? So he took the Iliad theme and rewrote them in Roman terms. I was baptized but was a secret Christian out of fear pretending to be pagan many years, and for this lack of zeal, I had to run 400 years on the fourth circle. So, he was 400 years on the level of sloth, 400 years on the level of the avarice, or prodigality. That's 900 years. Um, Stasius was born around the end of the first century, which means about 1150 years have passed since he died. Okay, first century, because that's where we are in Dante's time. So around 1150 years have passed since this point. We've accounted for 900 of them, 500 on the level of avarice and 400 on sloth. What happened to the other 250? I think Dante's just 
telling us something about purgatory. He, he obviously. Time, time is not. No, I think he spent 250 years pride in, I mean, the, the lower levels. Because, it, I mean, several people have had this question. I think, I think you, you did, David. What Dante's showing us is that each one of us, each one of us has certain inclinations, certain weaknesses in one area more than others. Some people are more given to avarice. They want possessions. Some people are more given to lusts. Um, each one of us has our own deep weaknesses. Um, um, Debbie said a couple of weeks ago when she was saying, you know, she was frightened about appearing all together and, and Fred back, I think we all spoke to it. And I, I suggested when I saw her another time, I think last week was, all of us I think are afraid to admit our sins. I mean, we, we, we are all covered up in some way. My belief is, I, I mean, I can't, definitively say this because Dante does, isn't explicit about it, but it's sort of implied. When people get to, if, if this is an image of penance, you know, after this work, or, or on this earth, that when, when you begin to undertake the penance of pride, your, 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 your response to anybody else's sins is not going to be to shame them. If they're there doing penance with you, the only natural response is humility to love them. What will get you is if somebody's being proud <laughs> and denying it. But that's not what's happening in purgatory. The people on the level of pride are all doing penance. That means they're helping each other, they're showing each other a humility, they're straining together. So the last thing on their mind is how shameful what you did, you know, or, you know. It's somehow they're gonna be, they're gonna see each other in their pride but what's holding them in their work is their humility, so they're not going to be condemning or judging or... What Dante's making clear is that each person has, has an inclination to do one thing or another. Stasius, he's been on, he's been on purgatory for 1150 years. I mean, I think some of us would like to think, I hope it's a short time. <laughs> what Dante's saying is, think again. <laughs> and Dante's quite clear. He says, the what, do you, I think you've read that passage. What's the one level he's most frightened of? Pride. He says, the one that I'm, I mean, I read that line and smile because the one thing that frightens me about my, I mean, there are two sins, top and bottom of pride and luster. I mean, the things that frighten me most in myself are those. Every one of us has particular inclinations, and which will require more time on those, or more time on earth, you know, I mean, if we're struggling, it's struggling with things that are particular to us and they're different for, so Stasius is an interesting figure because in one sense he's giving away the whole scheme. 500 years on one level, 400 on another, 250 that are unaccounted for that have to have taken place down below, um, I'm assuming there was a large part of pride because he's, he's a writer and you know Roman in the sense of nobility. Dante's got it. Okay, what's Stasius doing here? Um, I'm, I'm going to very quickly. Um, Dante meets um, page um, 300. Go back. Just I'm going to do this very very quickly because I want to get to the. Dante meets Pope Pius XII, 
Pope Adrian on page 300. He's on the level of the adverse and he's face down. And Dante comes to him and speaks to him. And, and once again, it's all in courtesy. And Adrian says it wasn't until he became Pope that he began to realize the blindness of the world, page 302. It was only then did I perceive the falseness of the world. And he turned away from it. So he's doing penance for being too avaricious, wanting too much. And Dante kneels at his feet, top of 303, why are you kneeling at my side? Your dignity commands my conscience would not let me stand. Up on your feet, my brother, he replied, you should not kneel, I am a servant too with you. And then he says, um, do you not remember the gospel? Neki um, nubent, um, this is where he's answering the Pharisees about um, if if a man and and wife are, or yeah a man and woman are married and the wife dies does does he marries his brother or sister and he, and they go on like that and ask about whether or not marriage is going to be permanent in heaven and Christ says there will be no marriages in heaven because remember in heaven we're all um, um, the brides Christ is the bridegroom we're spouse to him. So all of us are married to him and one another. So the marriages that are important for our life have a different character there. So he's saying it's true here about your relationship to me. Don't kneel in heaven. You will be, I think the bright, brides of Christ is my sense of it. Um, he will meet Fleurise Fleurise on page um, um, I'm not finding it, but I, and I'm not concerned. But all the people in the level of avarice are hollowed out. They're starving themselves, and they're prostrate on the ground. Like the envious who had their eyes wide shut because the avaricious wanted wealthy things too much, now they're forced to look at the earth, the dust. I want to... Um, I want to introduce a, a thing here and ask everybody to think about it, and we'll close up here. A couple of things. Why Stasius? Um, two things to... On page 314, 315 is a, is a touching exchange between Stasius and Virgil. Bottom of 314, Stasius is identifying himself. He's describing who he is and, and telling Dante and Virgil how much he loved Virgil. He doesn't know that the man in front of him is the one man that he loved almost more than any other human being. The spark that kindled my poetic ardor came from that ancient flame that set on fire more than a thousand poets. I mean the Aeneid. That was the uh, mother of my poetry, the nurse that gave it suck. Without that poem, my verses would not... Virgil gave him life. There's nothing, and we know that how important that is for Dante because Virgil's Dante's guide. Beatrice sent Virgil because she knew how much he meant to Dante. It, 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 I think it's fair to say these poets gave each other life. Without them, they could not have done what they did. And if only I could have been alive when Virgil lived, I would consent to spend an extra year of exile on that mount. At these words, Virgil turned to me. His look told me in silence, silence. 
but the power of a man's will is often powerless. Laughter and tears followed so close upon the passions that provoke them that the more sincere the man, the less they obey his will. Somebody paraphrase that. What, describe what's going on in this moment. <coughs> Laughter and tears follow so close upon the passions that provoke them that the more sincere the man, the less they will obey his will. Well, I think when it's sort of like a, they, you're sincere, you're contrite, and as those things get you, it causes you to cry. I mean, we go through all of that in different things that we see in our lives. Mm -hmm. Or laugh. Or laugh. Either yeah. one, or yeah. both. At the same. Yeah. There are times in Mass, I mean, I don't see it coming at all. There will be times in Mass, I don't see it coming, nothing particular, and suddenly my heart will well up and I'll get teary out of nowhere. I'm sure that's true for, I'm guessing it's true for all of us. That there, What he's saying is when your heart is sincere, you can't hold back. It's not like you have any, they'll just come out. Joy, um, righteous indignation. <laughs> um, that is, if the heart is sincere, it's going to come out. It, I mean, it was made to be that. In laughter, there are times when some, out of nowhere, somebody will say something. You can't help but laugh. You don't think about it. You just, and there are times when something will happen, and your eyes will tear up. I think that's because of a connection that you have with it from the past or some experience you've had. And it brings that emotion out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your heart just can't. So what's happening is Virgil can't disguise what's going on because he is a sincere man. And he's feeling flattered because of what Stasius has just said. But here's where it goes. Bottom of 315. You seem to find me smiling very strange, I said. Well, ancient spirit. But I have to tell you something still. And he says, the man in front of you is Virgil, 316. Already he was bending to embrace my teacher's feet, but Virgil, brother, no, you are a shade, and it is a shade you see. And Stasius rising, now you understand how much my love for you burns deep in me when I forget about our emptiness to deal with shadows as solid thing. We've talked about this moment. Wordsworth gave it the title of that poem, Surprised by Joy, that sometimes we're so overwhelmed that we forget they're a shade. You can't class them. I gave you that example, didn't I? The um, Wordsworth lost his sister, and he was walking alone one day, and he was so used to the two of them talking, and they would share their feelings, and he's so overwhelmed by the moment one time that he turns to tell her she's not there. You hear stories about um, widowers and widows when they're alone, and say a, a, a widower and um, or a widow and widower, and he's watching television. Let's say and he's overcome, or listening to music or something, and for a moment he's overcome by something and turns, you know, um, that, that it's, it's another way of saying that joy is so natural to us, it was meant to be our nature. <clears throat> it just takes over. can't be denied. It, what an indication that joy is our end. Um, so they're united here, and from this point on, they go together, but I want to uh, freeze you on page 325. The spark rekindled in my memory the image of those features now so changed and I could see his face again. Um, it's interesting, Dante asks him, 326, Free, since that day when you abandoned your world for a better life, less than five years from your last day have passed. He wants to know why Faurice is there because Dante knew 
Verice had not practiced penance when he was living. That he was just living a carefree life. So he's asking, how did you get here so soon? You know? And Verice says that um, a beloved had prayed for him. So once again, it's Dante showing how much prayers move God. That there's this community of love that affects people. And I really believe when you happen, if you're a person that tends to be self-sufficient, you're used to depending on yourself, you won't see it. Because you're too used to relying on yourself. But our, one of the truths of our church is this mystical body. That there are graces going to offset that the pride of self-sufficiency. That I can do it myself or get, you know. So, I, again, it's Dante showing us one of the wonders. Every, every canticle, every ledge has wonders that are being expressed. It's a part of the life there. I want to stop here, but I, but I want to I want to touch on Stasius and then um, turn over to three three uh, thirty. I want to put this out for everybody. We meet two poets here at the level of gluttony, not lust. Gluttony, three thirty. The middle of the page, a woman has been born, he said, and she is still unmarried who will give you cause to love my city, which all men revile. Bonaguenta was a poet. Okay? Go down. But tell me, do I not see standing here him who brought forth the new poems that begin, ladies who have intelligence of love? That's Dante's opening line to La Vita Nuova, his long lyric poem expressing, this is a lyric, expressing his love for Beatrice. When he first saw her, he was so overcome by her, he saw her as the living embodiment of the Trinity. He saw in her a living image of the Trinity. So he wrote this, and by the way, you have it. It's in the back of the book. I, I would encourage you all to read it. It's just, it, it, it's Dante as a lyric poet, not, a, not an epic poet, a lyric poet. Um, but tell me, do I not see standing here him who brought forth the new lines, ladies who have intelligence of... Notice that phrasing. Intelligence of love. How many people think of intelligence as being related to love or the heart? What sets these women apart is the intelligence that they show comes from their heart. What happens to a woman or a man who inverts that so the intellect is a thing unmoved by the heart. We know it happens. Right. You've got ideologies. You're in your head. It's, it's, a, it's so interesting to me that his phrasing of this, this group of women, this Italian group with Beatrice at the center of it, ladies who have intelligence of love, and I, the implication is their, their minds are much finer than women's whose minds are not rooted in their hearts. There's a disconnect. I hope you're all following. Oh yeah. You can see it. You can see it in men all the time, and you can see it in women. They're, they're in their heads. The, the whole way of relating to the world. I said to him, "I'm the one when love inspires me." Now take note of this, because this is the beginning of what is going to be the next few cantos, Dante's critique of poetry and art. I am the one who, when love inspires me, takes careful note and then gives form to what he dictates in my heart. What moves Dante's poetry? The spirit. What he's saying is there is nothing he has written down here that didn't have his origins in the spirit. 
Whatever he said to me, I wrote. If it wasn't clear before, it has to be now. This is the, one of the key indications that this whole thing is prophetic. I am the one who, when love inspires me, takes careful note and then gives form to what he dictates in my heart. Can anybody be more open than that? My brother, now I see, he said, the knot that held Guitoni and the notary and me back from the sweet new style. Now, a lot's going to happen here, and I want a class on it. So, Dante's style was called the sweet new style, la vita nuova, the new life. What we're going to see, and I'm going to come to this next week, you're going to see different poets. Dante's going to meet two poets here. He's going to meet two poets on the level of lustful. Stasius, Virgil, Dante, and four other poets. That's seven poets. There's a college of poets meeting in these last two levels, gluttonous <laughs> and, and um, level. What's he doing and why? Now, hold on to that. I want to just come back to Stasius. Who is Stacy and what is he? Remember, Stacius was baptized as a Christian, but he didn't profess it because he was afraid, because the Christians were being persecuted. Yeah. So he cared more about his own life than offering it. He's done 1,150 years in purgatory. Um, he was baptized as a pagan. Why is he given this importance? My own belief is this. Dante doesn't state this explicitly, but when you put all this stuff together, you, you know that Stasius is more than Stasius. He's an image of the converted Christian. He's also an image of what I think Dante would see as, as what I can only call an unreflective Catholic. A person who doesn't fully grow into his faith. If you look back at the Middle Ages and think about it, because there was only one church, um, the, the, actually the schism took place 1054 between East and West, so there you know, East and West Orthodox world and the Catholic world were separated, but they were still sacramental. The Reformation hadn't taken place. Um, you have to say that the, the great majority of Catholics, Orthodox, living in that period, were unreflective. They just lived their faith. There was nothing else to live. They had no reason for questioning it. They just lived it. Every, in fact, anybody who wasn't was persecuted. That's how much it was taken for granted. What he's showing us is how important it is to move from that naturalistic, converted qualities, spirit, whatever you want to call it, to a reflective Christianity so that one looks at his faith and is able to more fully live it, to understand it. Fide Arezzo, bring reason to it. I'm trusting that everybody... Is that also called blind faith? I used to use that a lot that they, they just never question anything. Right, right. You can call it, I, I think that's accurate. Dave. My answer to that, I would prefer unreflective because I'm trying to give the benefit that people aren't willfully blind. They don't know any better. In, in, think about it. In the modern world, everybody has a choice now. Then they didn't. I mean, you, you grew up Catholic. Today, because of the, the schisms, now you have choices. And, and the, here's the serious thing. When people make those choices, how much did they do it on the basis of ref, really deeply reflecting on something? How well did they know it? Go back to the beginning of our Catholic Protestant thing. How many people understood what was at issue then? 
Well, you know, if you go back to what we were talking about with all of them denying the Eucharist or the Pope or the authority, that's at a time when men are beginning to be educated and these intellectual figures are standing out and saying, no, 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 and you've got all these reformers. There's all this corruption going on in the church, but you've got Calvin saying, um, um, it's not the real presence. You've got Luther in saying it's not the real presence, it's something a little bit different. Um, the Pope doesn't have the authority to, you know, you've got men thinking who are beginning to reflect, um, but how many people are really aware of the, what's at the heart of the church, the authority of it, the presence of Christ, the sacraments, and come into the modern world and look at the great variety of denominations, how many people are reflective? I think one of the functions of Stasius is to show in a figure, because remember, when he, when he emerges from the mountain, he's described as um, Christ's newborn. He's coming to Christ. He's, he's, he's fulfilled his goodness. He is an image. He's a Christ image. He's the prelude to Beatrice, who will more fully image Christ when Dante gets there. But we're seeing a Christ image emerge from this long history of penance, so I think in some sense he's meant to convey the sense of how important this maturing in a person, in a tradition, an age, that it has just taken centuries for Christianity to get to this point to be able to do what Dante's doing. Picture, Dante, picture this kind of an epic 400 years earlier. Let me put it differently. Picture this before St. Thomas came, not a prayer. This could only have happened after St. Thomas. Because St. Thomas is the one who brings in the intellectual life of the church to maturity. So Dante's aware of this historical development and how important it is that it happened and how important it is that people take it into themselves because it will make for a fuller participation in our human condition than if it's not. So, um, and so he emerges at this point and then we're going to have these Seven poets. Now let me just try to set this up for next week. How did the Commedia begin? With Inferno proper? When Dante entered it? Um, the, the pagans were in hell, virtuous. But the act of sins don't begin until the level of lust. And what do we learn in that first level? What put Francisco and Paola there? art, poetry. At the beginning of the purgatory, Casella arrives. What's the first thing that happens after they greet each other? They sing. What does Cato do? Get on. Middle of purgatory, we've got the siren, how enchanting beauty can become. So over and over and over and over again, Dante's critiquing art. We call ourselves a celebrity culture. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say the, the, the greatest power in the world is art. Music, movies, books. The celebrity culture has the power it does not by accident. It's an indication of how much people thrive on movies, stories. The music, or I hate rap music, but music has been, it dominates. I mean, people are taken over. When you look at all these live audiences where they have 10,000 people listening to a rock art, you know, it's almost like they're gone. It's like a herd. 
that music, music has that kind of power. So right here at the top of Purgatory, before Dante's going to go out, he has this meeting of poets talking about poetry. That's not an accident. What he's doing is critiquing it. And my question is, what's he telling us? So I would like to ask you, go back to 24, it's page 330, where he meets Bonaguenta. Go back to that and then look at what Dante says when he comes to the level of lustful and he meets Guido and Argenti. So all these poets are there at the very end of Purgatory. Dante's dealing so directly with our emotional life. By the way, this is me, but when I hear Christ saying to Peter, feed my sheep, when I heard John Paul, John Paul used to say it, feed my sheep, I hear them saying, give my love. It's feeding the emotions. But we know the, the emotions are in trouble. I hope I can say that. Our emotional life is in trouble. We carried these disorders, emotional disorders. We love the wrong way. Are, is everybody with me? Yes. If you put all this together, what we learn when you go up, there's something wrong with our loves. The, remember, it, love was behind all of this. Love of evil in the first three, pride, envy. Love of evil. It, disordered, excessive love above. What's wrong are, is love. It's disordered. What's the role of arts in forming, helping us to form good emotions, to answer our disorders? It's not an accident that Dante's doing what he's doing right now. He's, he's going to one of the greatest powers in the world and trying to answer it. So this is where we'll pick up. I'm going to go through that and then look at briefly what happens with Peter. I'm going to start the Paradiso next week. Okay. So we get on. Okay. Any questions or? Well, one thing, when you said when a man's uh, good, his soul is good, then he doesn't deviate from that. Is that what you said? Like once he becomes good, were, were you referring to like St. Thomas More, Sir Thomas More, and the Man for All Seasons, where he was so good that they couldn't change him from that? I don't know that I would have said that, but I believe what you're saying, and I think it's rare for people to be that good. That that there's something in Shakespeare that makes me wonder whether he wasn't that kind of a person. Uh, when we do Shakespeare, when we I'll, I'll come back to that, but I think that there are some people whose virtues are, are so strong in them that it's easier for them. They face fewer temptations, I believe, than the rest of us. Um, that most of us, I'm speaking for myself, and I'm assuming for most of us, that we're so aware of our weaknesses and the virtues are not very well developed. But I believe that there are some people who are, St. Thomas had to be that kind of, Thomas More was one, that there are some people who are, who've grown up whose habits are, virtue, vir, the word virtue <coughs> means a habit. Habitus is a power. The more virtuous you become, the easier it is for you to be that way. That's why I think it's so important to do this and who knows this? I wish kids were growing up with this stuff today. If kids, you know, if we started out with a better education, um, if kids had this earlier on, we would have such a better jump on life, my own belief. Because, because virtue, virtue means a habit, a, a way. Let me put it differently. I, um, I'm take, I know for myself, and I'm assuming for most of you, there are certain sins you have, certain sins that I have. 
that I have to struggle with tremendously. So even when I go through a period where I think, ah, I'm, I'm getting better, a week later, you know. So our weaknesses are always there. I mean, we're always struggling against them. But I, I do believe that there are some people who are more given to vices, who are more steeped in sin. We know that around us. Think about people on drugs or... Um, and they're not all bad people. I mean, they're just, they're caught. Um, and by the same token, at the other end, there are some people who are more virtuous. I think they're rare, and I think some people who think they're virtuous are not. I mean, it's such a difficult thing. You know, it's just such a difficult thing. But I don't remember saying that, David. What I remember is um, saying that when the soul is released from, I don't know if that's the passage we're going back to, but when... Stasius was released and he was describing himself. He said, when the will is pure, mm -hmm. it moves on its own. And I was quoting that line from St. Augustine, love and do what you will. When, when your love is purified, and your love is good, whatever you do, do. There's nothing to say. And will the world recognize it? Probably not. Um, that's obviously, I think, what all of us hope for, long for one day, that all of us will... And the more that we can do this in the world, the better for us in the world. It's, I wish more of us could do I wish this kind of education were, you know, given to people. Um, anyway. Thank you. Okay. We'll see you all Sunday. Um, bells on and forks and knives. Good. <laughs>